it's pretty simple. A lot of the time in endodontics, the tooth is already hurting and it's infected potentially. And so there's already a strong push for them to consider treatment. And they can either choose to try to save the tooth or they can have it removed. Today, we have Dr. Michael Adams joining us on our fifth episode of Tooth Untold Podcast. He obtained his Doctor of Dental Surgery degree from the University of Nebraska College of Dentistry. After one year of private practice, Dr. Adams completed a two-year endodontics residency at the University of Tennessee. Currently, he's an associate at Advanced Endodontics in Alabama, where he delivers high-quality treatment using cutting-edge technology. Join us as we discuss a day in the life of endodontics. Let's get to it. Now tell us what's up. Welcome to Tooth Untold Podcast, where we interview exceptional dentists from around the world. In each episode, we probe the mind of a dentist and extract wisdom and knowledge from their experiences. Now here's your host, Kevin Zappa. What inspired you to choose endodontics as a specialty? When I started dental school, I actually wasn't too familiar with endodontics at all. I didn't come up, you know, with a lot of dentists in my family. And so when I got into dental school, a lot of it was new for me, actually. And it was from my very first class about the biology of the dental pulp that I realized I was pretty interested in it. For, and I don't necessarily know why, but I had a little inclination that I was interested in this corner of dentistry. And I got further into dental school and went through the lab courses and actually started working on teeth and, you know, taking the x-rays and going through the process of doing a root canal. And I like the really detailed nature of it. I like just the flow of going, of every step made sense to me. It's like, you have to do this well before you can go to the next step, you know, and if you don't follow the steps then it's going to be complicated and it can get complicated really quickly if you don't do it you know in the correct order and but I, and it just made sense to me I liked it and then I got out of dental school and I worked as a general dentist for a year and I realized during that point in time that every time I started to enjoy my work of doing like a, a longer procedure I really really enjoyed that and I didn't like being interrupted with hygiene checks all the time, being pulled away to go, because it would interrupt me. I liked the longer procedures and the fine detailed work. And so endo just seemed to fit for me. Now, was endo something that you were great at right from the start? No one is really great at it, I feel like, in the beginning. It's, it's hard, right? And especially in dental school, you're learning indirect vision. And everything is new. You're working in the mirror and upside down and backwards, you know, all these tools that you've never used before. So I think it's hard to come out of dental school feeling good at really anything. So that's why it's really important to pursue further education after dental school. Dental school isn't meant to teach you everything you need to know. You know, it's meant to get you to a point where you're not going to be harming and hurting patients, you know, when you're out. But it doesn't teach you to master anything, really. There's just not enough time, right? So I think I didn't feel really successful, but I knew that I liked it more compared to other things. And sometimes figuring out what you want to do is a process of elimination, right? So I knew that I didn't want to do other things and I kind of liked this and I didn't feel good at it yet, 
but I knew that I wanted to keep learning. For sure. And I feel like endodontics is something that I'd want to pursue in the near future. So as an endodontist, what are the procedures that you do on a day-to-day basis? So that's one thing that I also like is there's a smaller number of procedures. Now, some people may not like that, but you know, I feel good about having a smaller limited you know, number of options for treatment because the treatment really sells itself. It's either a patient will come in and, you know, I do a consult on them. I take all the x-rays, take a look at the tooth and go through the diagnostic testing and then help them determine what they want to do. But a lot of the time it's pretty simple, right? You're not having to sell patients on what they really should do or which you have to do, you know, in restorative dentistry sometimes. A lot of the time in endodontics, the tooth is already hurting and it's infected potentially. And so there's already a strong push for them to consider treatment and they can either choose to try to save the tooth or they can have it removed. It's pretty clear cut. You know, there are some great, there's some, you know, smaller things that we can do like, you know, pulp therapy, vital pulp therapies or things like that. But usually it's pretty clear cut. Either we need to do the root canal or we need to redo the root canal. And there's apical surgery that is also a possibility for patients, but um, at least in the practice where, where I work, it's not like an everyday occurrence where you have to do an apical surgery. Um, it's a little more of a rare procedure. So it's mostly looking at doing initial root canals and redoing root canals. And if they don't want to do it, then a lot of the time they have to have the tooth removed. So it's pretty clear cut. That's true. You can either save the tooth or extract it. Now, is it frustrating sometimes when you know that you could save the tooth, but the patient opts for extraction? I think once you do it enough, you, you can't necessarily get so personally attached to helping a patient, you know, save a tooth or not. You know, it's kind of their body and their decision. What's frustrating is when they want to, and it, they may not have all the resources for it. And I can't just always be doing root canals for free. You know, it takes money. It takes, you know, paying the staff and keeping the office going. And the, the materials we use are really expensive in dentistry, as you know. You know, dental school is more expensive than medical school in a lot of, you know, ways because of all the materials, right? So what's more frustrating from my point of view is if a patient really wants to save a tooth, but they just can't quite, you know, come together and pay for it. And we try to, you know, work with patients um, to help, you know, reduce the barriers to care. But if they decide that they want to to have a tooth removed, I'm not going to stop them. I don't feel like it's you know, I try to educate as best I can during our consult appointment and, you know, give them all the information they need. But if they decide they want to have the tooth out, then I can't do too much about it. I just want to make sure they have all the information for them to be able to make their own educated decision. I'm glad you brought that up because cost is definitely one of the barriers to oral health. So is it common to see patients asking for discounts for their endodontic treatments? Yeah, good question. So if a patient only cares about getting the cheapest price, then they maybe aren't going to be the best patient for the office that I work at. Okay, because there's other endodontists that do things cheaper. So it's all about what kind of brand you want to create for your office. So the office I work at, I'm not the owner, you know, I'm an employee, but I'm proud to work at an office where we try to to offer the highest quality 
service for the patient possible using the latest technology on the market you know spending the time needed to do a really good job we're not doing like half an hour root canals and getting them you know in and out and not spending the time to really clean and disinfect and seal a tooth up really well so in terms of discount we have patients that call you know and they'll be like hey you know this other office is going to do a root canal for this much you know would you do that and just because of the amount of materials that we use that are different that I know of compared to other offices, the technology we have, the time we spend with the patient, we don't really offer too many discounts. We, we don't. There's, again, certain leeway that we have for a patient that comes in for payment, you know, plan options. Um, we try to be, you know, work with patients that really seem to want to save their teeth, but discounts in general, you kind of have to be fair to everybody across the board, like legally speaking too, you know, you can't really be changing your prices every, you know, every time someone walks in the door. So as a, as an office, the brand of your practice is important and we try to uphold the highest quality of, of care possible. And so we're known for having a slightly more expensive root canal, you know, in the area that I practice in, but I think the patients that come to our office see the value in that. And a lot of the time it's not a problem because they know that they're coming to some, somewhere where, you know, the quality of the treatment is the, is the highest. Right. And it all boils down to the quality of not only the materials, but also the treatment of the dentist or the endodontist for that matter. Moving on to my next question. What are the challenges that you face as an endodontist? I'll give you my nightmare scenario for trying to treat a tooth. Okay, limited opening is tough. Anytime someone comes in with really limited opening or trismus, say they had like, you know, they went to their dentist just a couple of days before and they got, you know, work done on both sides of their mouth and they're, they have trismus or like hard time opening their mouth and their jaw joints inflamed and they're kind of hurting still. That's a time to like put them on some anti-inflammatory medication and reappoint them. Cause like you can't do your work if you can't have them open. So that's, that's a challenge, right? Another challenge would be if you just feel like you don't have, if it's such a busy day, you don't always have all the time in the world to, to do the type of work that you want to do. You kind of have to learn, you know, especially as a newer dentist, how to manage the time so that you're not rushing things. Sometimes you have to, you can't finish a case. You have to just get the nerve out of the tooth and put some calcium hydroxide in it or whatever you want to use to temporize the tooth and bring them back to finish it. But learning how to, to manage that, especially as a newer dentist, I think is really important because as you're learning, you know, if you try to rush something and push in dentistry and like, oh, I have to finish this you know, in the next 10 minutes, that's when stuff goes wrong. So that's, that's another challenge, just learning how to use your skill set for the maximum benefit for the patient and, and time management. If it's a really busy day, sometimes you just can't always finish the root canal in one appointment. You got to like split it up. Um, and then I guess another thing is just um, patient disposition. Sometimes that can be challenging, you know, really demanding patient or a patient that doesn't necessarily have realistic expectations can sometimes be a challenge to work with. And so that's why, you know, before you even start a root canal, it's really important to kind of set their expectation. Like, hey, the tooth is going to be kind of sore you know, after this appointment. Like, it's not going to be 100% pain-free. 
just managing patient expectations is is another challenge too sometimes, especially in you know in in a higher I don't know kind of an upscale practice where you know it's a lot of you know wealthier patients potentially or like patients that they expect the best and so it's good to just you know get on the same page with them you know the dental school demographic is a little different compared to the private practice demographic sometimes that's that's a major change that i've found you know compared to you know when i was in dental school versus out working in the real world right and i'm glad you mentioned that because if you don't set the expectations correctly that's when you encounter problems so how high are the, are the rates for litigation in endodontics? Because I've seen videos where, you know, you should expect to get sued in your career at least once. And that's definitely a big deal for me. Well, in endodontics, it is supposedly one of the higher, you know, it has one of the higher rates for, for litigation or, you know, complaints or being sued. I guess on average, you know, you can expect to be sued a couple times just as a dentist in general. Um, and it's a little bit higher, I guess, for endodontics, at least that's what I've heard. But I've found that, and, and I'm new, I'm new to this, man. So, I mean, I'm just giving what limited perspective I can, but it really seems like trust with the patient, it is transferred from the referring dentist. So as an endodontist, we get, you know, we're a referral-based specialty, right? So if and if you have a really great relationship with your referring dentist and you communicate really well and you try to work with dentists who you know they, they really have the patient's best interest in mind, they really take great care of their patient, those patients trust their dentist and they really, they'll, and they will end up transferring that trust to you as a specialist. So since their dentist is so good and it really cares for them, you know, when they are sent off to go to other specialties that have work done, they, they kind of transfer that. And that's really, really beneficial. And I think that is the major key to avoiding, you know, problems. Just managing expectations and working with great dentists that really care for the patient. Because if there's a disconnect and there's no communication and you just, you accept whoever comes in the door and there's no follow-up and no, that's when stuff gets lost in the mix. And I think a lot of the problems occur from that kind of that kind of care. That's just my opinion, just from initially starting in the specialty, but that's what it seems like to me. I haven't had a single really issue yet where a patient is, you know, really upset, but our office works with, you know, we try to communicate really well with our referring docs and patients seem to already trust us when they come in most of the time. You know, if you establish rapport right out the gate with the patient, you you really, you know, take, you're not just like coming in the room, leaning them back and getting them numb, not even saying hello. You know what I mean? It's like some, some people do that, but you just got to be a human and care for them and help them know that you care for them, you know, and you're not trying to push them into a treatment that they don't understand what's happening and they don't know the cost. You know, you're just starting to work on them. And then if, if that were to happen and then they, the tooth kind of hurt after what, afterwards, you know, then I can understand why a patient would be upset, but it's just, it's just good communication. That's the major key to all of life, I think, right? Exactly. And how would you say you would manage these expectations? Well, the more you learn, the more you kind of can help manage the patient expectation right out of the gate. You know, the more you can, the more teeth you see, 
the more red flags will go up and you're like, okay, this, this could go south in this direction or this could go south this direction. Like in endodontics, for example, you know, you're interested in endo. What is the biggest thing that we, we have a challenge with long-term? It's usually the, a restorative aspect or a restorative failure, a structural failure of the tooth, not being enough tooth left, you know, having a really compromised tooth, maybe cracks, you know, cracks are really horrible for us, you know, in terms of long-term success. So, and a lot of the time we'll see teeth that already have cracks in them. And so if that's the case, what's helpful is to be able to have technology to be able to take a picture of it, show it to the patient, like, hey, you know, this tooth has a crack in it. You may, I can't necessarily tell you how long this root canal will last you. You know, if you decide you want it treated, it could last you six months. It could last you six years. I have, I mean, I have no idea. And trying to, you know, increase your understanding of the field in a way where you can see those red flags are going off even before you start the case. And then being able to talk about them with the patient, show them to the patient, that's the major key. Because if you just do the root canal, you send them home and, you know, they think everything should be good for the rest of their life that's when the disconnect occurs and that's when, you know, they can get upset. So that's a really good question, but I would say it's just being able to kind of see some of those red flags right out of the gate before you even start a case. And sometimes something will happen during the case, like, you know, let's just say a fractured instrument. Okay. You break a file off in the tooth. That's, that's not the end of the world. I mean, I've broken so many files, but again, it has to just be something that's communicated and be like, hey, this happens, uh, depending on you know where it is or if you can get it out or not, it may not even affect the case at all. So if someone comes in and they're wanting a, a root canal on a, a molar and it's supporting a long sprand bridge and the bridge is leaky or whatever, you know, you can do the root canal just fine, but it may fail because of a leaky bridge. So you have to, you have to, endodontics is a specialty where it, it is important to not just know how to do the root canal really well. You kind of have to understand restorative dentistry, you know, and if the occlusion, you have to, you have to make sure occlusion's okay. You have to make sure that everything is sealed really well, you know, on the top of the tooth, or you have to be able to find and detect caries because sometimes those things will end up being, it will end up resulting in a failure of the case, but it's not the root canal that failed, it's the structural integrity of the tooth or the, the restorative work on the coronal seal of the tooth that is usually the problem. Research shows us that long-term, the endodontics fails at a lot smaller percentage than like, you know, the structural, the remaining amount of tooth or in the restorative work. Those are the bigger issues that we deal with. but if it's not communicated, a lot of the time, you know, restorative dentists might blame it on the root canal. It's just having, having the vision to be able to see everything. You know, sometimes it's great to be able to take a bite wing before you do a root canal. Not everyone does that, but just to check margins and make sure everything is looking good at the top of the tooth too. Now, out of curiosity, I've seen complications that occur during root canal treatments uh, in textbooks, such as hypochlorite accidents, and are these are these frequent? Do they happen frequently in root canal treatments? I've I've never done one myself. I've seen them on you know dental Instagram. I've read about them in textbooks. 
I, I really feel like it should be easily avoidable, right? So when someone is irrigating a tooth, they, you can't wedge the irrigation needle in and push on it. You just can't. You have to keep it loose, right? And also, you have to know the length of the tooth you're working on. If you don't, and it's an open apex, and you don't measure the length of the irrigation needle, and you just put it in, and it goes out the end of the tooth, and you start irrigating, you know, that's no good. So you can have little rubber stoppers on the irrigation needle to make sure that it's, you know, a couple millimeters back from the working length that you need to go to. So you can make sure it's getting down and cleaning where it needs, but not getting too far down. Or you can bend the needle, you know, ride it a couple millimeters short of, of where you're working to. That's another way. And then never putting it past that point. So that's just a couple things. It should never be totally engaged down in the canal of the tooth and squirting on it. That's no good. And then you can always have like a reference point and a measurement point to, to go to. But to be answer your question, I've never I haven't actually seen one. And I haven't done one. Never really thought about that, but that's actually really great advice. And uh, thank you. Thank you for that. I'll try that next time. You can just kind of get the feel of it too, as long as it's not an open apex and you, you put it down, you can kind of feel where it binds and you just make sure it's back a little bit and then you can flush things gently. And then I don't think it should ever be a really strong like pressure. You know, it should probably just be enough to be a light movement in the canal space and not too much. And really though, the, the best cleaning actions are you put the irrigation in the tooth and then there's devices to really activate it really well. So the, the activation shouldn't necessarily, in my opinion, be from pressing the irrigation needle down. There's, there's other devices and not, they're not too expensive, you know, some of them where there's like a little plastic piece, you know, that goes down and then a battery powered handpiece and it really vibrates the irrigation fluid and really gets a lot of, um, it stirs it up really well. And then you can remove that and put a little more hypochlorite in the, in the canal space and just replenish it and then activate it again and replenish it, activate it. But it shouldn't be a really forceful like needle push. That's, that's my recommendation anyways. It's very easily avoidable, you know, if you just do those simple things. I think when it happens, it's just someone that's really stressed or not thinking and they're just trying to hurry. And next thing you know, it happens. But endo is not something to really rush. I feel like every time I've started rushing or pushing like oh i need to get done at this point at this point that's when things tense up and then it sometimes will cause more problems that's when i'll make my biggest mistakes usually so i have to learn to just kind of like take a breath and relax you just have to go with the flow right you just got to stay calm and collected so when you do your root canal treatments how long does it normally take you to perform the procedure yeah, so we will usually have an hour and a half block for a molar root canal. Um, I can tell you though, that's not, I think, I think starting out like right out of dental school, I don't think that's necessarily realistic. It's just not, you need time. So in dental school, sometimes you'll have the patient there three or four hours at a time. That's not really realistic either. 
because most patients are not gonna have their mouth open that long. It's pretty rare to get someone that will agree to do that. So I think starting out, it'd be a great idea to have two hour blocks. And even if you don't finish the case on that two hour block for a molar, then that's fine and bring them back for another two hour block to finish it. So I think that's reasonable. But you know, once you do it more and you pick up speed, depending on the tooth, you know, you can decide what works for you. But, you know, front tooth obviously probably wouldn't take quite as long as a molar. So, but for me, a front tooth is like an hour block and a molar is an hour and a half block. That's impressive. I mean, if I compare myself as a beginner, I mean, an interior tooth already takes like four hours. <laughs> it is, but I mean, there's guys that do it even way faster than that. Yeah, there's some you know, really seasoned endodontists that can do a great job and they do it faster. But, you know, at the office where I work at, we actually, um, we tried to actually place a great coronal seal after we do the root canal. So that can take a little extra time. And we also use an irrigation device that takes a little extra time that really activates the irrigation, kind of like I was telling you about. And it can take some extra time too, so. The actual root canal itself sometimes isn't, it doesn't take that long. It's just, you know, talking to the patient and reviewing everything. And then the treatment time sometimes is actually just 45 minutes or 50 minutes, but you still block off about an hour and a half. Sometimes if I see though, that it's a really complex case, then you can just modify the schedule. You just say, hey, I need two hours for this instead. Right, and I feel like with more practice, your speed will develop when performing root canal treatments. Now, my next question is, for those students who are struggling in endodontics, myself included, what advice could you give to shed light or to, so that we can see the light in performing root canal treatments? Yeah, one step at a time, right? So unless you can get the access right, everything else is going to be a lot harder. So in the beginning, I think the, the major, and diagnosis comes first though. You know, if you have the wrong diagnosis or like you're treating something that maybe doesn't need treatment or shouldn't be treated at all, case selection and diagnosis comes first. That's the very first thing to get right. So any energy should be spent on that first. Even once you're out, you know, and. Let's say that you need to do general dentistry for a while before heading into endo residency or something. Learning which cases need a root canal and which don't. And the diagnosis and case selection. Sometimes it's more important to not do a root canal. Be like, hey, this is not, I know that I probably won't be able to help the patient with this. So it's best to have the tooth removed. That, that comes first before anything. That's the most important thing, right? And knowing when to refer. Like, oh, this one's going to be, I know that I probably shouldn't get into this. It should send it off to an endodontist. That's the first thing. Okay. And then if you decide, no, we're going to do the root canal. We need to do it. Then I would say, you know, the isolation and the anesthesia, that's the next thing to focus on and get those down really, really well. And then after that, then it can be the access. And then it goes step by step, right? So it's hard to put a lot of energy into obturation when you don't have the other things even dialed in yet. 
So just understand it's a process. It's going to take many cases. It, you shouldn't take it personally. Case selection is key because if I think a lot of dentists, um, they get into, in, you know, they get out of dental school and they start doing endo, but then it's really frustrating because, but part of it is choosing the wrong cases to treat. Like you need to maybe, maybe in the beginning, just focus on premolars and anterior teeth. There's no shame in that. And really, really do them well, do them really well. And then once you're comfortable with that, then choosing easier molars. And then once you're feeling more comfortable with that, then you can, you know, keep going and going. But it all builds on each other. And diagnosis and case selection is the first thing I think to, to really get right. Because if those is if that's not right, then everything else could be frustrating. And like even for me, you know, starting as an endodontist, access, I, I still. I'm not always perfect with access, but that's the first, that's the first step. Once everything is numbed and the patient is there and they're ready for the root canal, you know, learning the access that I need to do in order to do the next steps that just focus on one thing at a time. And once you get the access down, then you can work a little more on, you know, the instrumentation. And then after you get all that dialed in, then obturation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, are using a microscope in practice, right? So how important is it to have magnification, not only in endodontics, but in dentistry? It's not necessarily realistic to expect a microscope can be, you know, anywhere in the world. Most root canals in the world are done without a microscope. And that's, that's fine. I think magnification and light are still really important. You know, but you can have great magnification and light from loops. But I think it it really is almost a standard of care to have pretty high magnification highlight. That's that's important. It doesn't have to be from a microscope. It does help, you know, once you're used to it. But you're almost doing a disservice to the patient if you just think that you're so good that you don't need to really see what you're doing and you don't need magnification. That's I think that's being silly. So to answer your question, I wouldn't want to work without a microscope, um, except, you know, if I'm doing some, you know, public health type things where you go into a, a different scenario where they don't have the equipment. So you have to take it with you and you can't always take a mi microscope wherever you go, you know, but I've been, you know, overseas and done, you know, out of the States and I've been honored to help you know, with dental care in different situations. And I'm passionate about doing that. And you're not always going to have a microscope, but you should be able to take something to really zoom in and, and illuminate the situation so you can do the best job for the patient. Getting loops is definitely a big investment, but definitely one that will help you in the long run. And I'm actually really happy that my dad is getting me loops. Actually, I just recently placed an order with Oroscoptic and I'm actually pretty psyched to get it, but it won't be till like a few months till I receive it. Do you think you can picture yourself without any magnification? I, I can't picture doing a root canal without just by like feel and not seeing what I'm doing. Seeing what you're doing is so important to me. So I, I would encourage you to do everything you can to, to invest in some loops. I think you'd be really happy with it. And then 
it does help your posture as well, you know, because we can't go and expect to have a long, happy and healthy career if we're constantly like bending our spine into these horrible chronically held positions for long hours every day. That's just not going to work long term. I would not do it if I had to do it like that. But the good news is if you get loops and a great light, then you can do you can still do a great job. Last but not least, is there any advice that you'd like to give to our aspiring dental students? You know, dentistry has so many different avenues and endodontics isn't for everybody. And I don't think that everybody should feel pressure to really love doing root canals and feel like they have to do them. I think everybody can find their lane in dentistry. There's so many different avenues for different personalities. And, you know, some people love the energizing, seeing a lot of patients, keeping things moving, higher volume, you know, talking with patients, interacting. You know, for me, as someone who was drawn to endodontics, I actually, I liked seeing a lot fewer patients. I liked the longer procedures, not having to talk to patients quite as much, you know, all day. I'm an introvert, actually. So like interviews like this or podcasts, I'm, I'm really honored to be on your podcast, by the way. But, you know, it's actually not where I feel most comfortable. You know, I'd rather be in the microscope working on a tooth, you know. So in dentistry, there's a lane for everybody. You know, if you like endodontics, and that's awesome. I hope you keep going for it. But I, you know, whoever's listening to this, I just don't feel like you should feel pressured to to go any certain way. I think you should listen to your intuition and go where you feel most happy and most alive. Like I really enjoy, you know, working in global health or public health settings too. It's a totally different type of thing, but I really enjoy it. And just listen to your own intuition about it. You know, if if you're going into a specialty because you know people are pressuring you to your parents or I don't know, just friends, whatever, you feel like you have to, that's not going to work long-term. You got to go where you doing the type of work that makes you feel happy and most alive. A big round of applause for Dr. Michael Adams for sharing his insights about endodontics as a specialty. I learned so much from you today and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for joining us on Tooth Untold Podcast. Whatever you decide to do, make sure it makes you happy. Follow your passion and success will follow you. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Tooth Untold Podcast. Stay safe and have a great weekend. See you on our next episode.